Welcome to the Weird and Loathsome Podcast. I am your pseudonymous host, Brian K. DeVille. The following is the first in a two-part reading of The Yellow Sign by Robert William Chambers. Enjoy. Let the red dawn surmise what we shall do When this blue starlight dies And all is through One There are so many things which are impossible to explain why should certain chords in music make me think of the brown and golden tints of autumn foliage? Why should the mass of Saint-Cécile bend my thoughts wandering among caverns whose walls blaze with ragged masses of virgin silver? What was it in the roar and turmoil of Broadway at six o'clock that flashed before my eyes the picture of a still Breton forest where sunlight filtered through spring foliage, and Sylvia bent, half curiously, half tenderly, over a small green lizard, murmuring, to think that this also is a little ward of God. When I first saw the watchman, his back was toward me. I looked at him indifferently until he went into the church. I paid no more attention to him than I had to any other man who lounged through Washington Square that morning. And when I shut my window and turned back into my studio, I had forgotten him. Late in the afternoon, the day being warm, I raised the window again and leaned out to get a sniff of air. A man was standing in the courtyard of the church, and I noticed him again with as little interest as I had that morning. I looked across the square to where the fountain was playing, and then, with my mind filled with vague impressions of trees, asphalt drives, and the moving groups of nursemaids and holiday makers, I started to walk back to my easel. As I turned, my listless glance included the man below in the churchyard. His face was toward me now, and with a perfect involuntary movement I bent to see it. At the same moment he raised his head and looked at me. Instantly I thought of a coffin worm. Whatever it was about the man that repelled me I did not know, but the impression of a plump, white, grave worm was so intense and nauseating that I must have shown it in my expression, for he turned his puffy face away with a movement which made me think of a disturbed grub in a chestnut. I went back to my easel and motioned the model to resume her pose. After working a while, I was satisfied that I was spoiling what I had done as rapidly as possible, and I took up a palette knife and scraped the color out again. The flesh tones were sallow and unhealthy, and I did not understand how I could have painted such sickly color 
into a study which before that had glowed with healthy tones. I looked at Tessie. She had not changed, and the clear flush of health dyed her neck and cheeks as I frowned. Is it something I've done? She said. No, I've made a mess of this arm, and for the life of me I can't see how I came to paint such mud as that into the canvas, I replied. Don't I pose well? She insisted. Of course, perfectly. Then it's not my fault? No, it's my own. I am very sorry. I told her she could rest while I applied rag and turpentine to the plague spots on my canvas, and she went off to smoke a cigarette and look over the illustrations in the Courier Francais. I did not know whether it was something in the turpentine or a defect in the canvas, but the more I scrubbed, the more that gangrene seemed to spread. I worked like a beaver to get it out, and yet the disease appeared to creep from limb to limb of the study before me. Alarmed, I strove to arrest it, but now the color on the breast changed, and the whole figure seemed to absorb the infection as a sponge soaks up water. Vigorously I plied palette knife, turpentine, and scraper, thinking all the time what a seance I should hold with Duval, who had sold me the canvas. But soon I noticed that it was not the canvas which was defective, nor yet the colors of Edward. It must be the turpentine, I thought angrily, or else my eyes have become so blurred and confused by the afternoon light that I can't see straight. I called Tessie, the model. She came and leaned over my chair, blowing rings of smoke into the air. What have you been doing to it? She exclaimed. Nothing, I growled. It must be this turpentine. What a horrible color it is now, she continued. Do you think that my flesh resembles green cheese? No. I don't, I said angrily. Did you ever know me to paint like that before? No, indeed. Well then, it must be the turpentine or something, she admitted. She slipped on a Japanese robe and walked to the window. I scraped and rubbed until I was tired and finally picked up my brushes and hurled them through the canvas with a forcible expression, the tone alone of which reached Tessie's ears. Nevertheless, she promptly began, That's it. Swear and act silly and ruin your brushes. You have been three weeks on that study, and now look. What's the good of ripping the canvas? What a creature artists are. I felt about as much ashamed as I usually did after such an outbreak, and I turned the ruined canvas to the wall. Tessie helped me clean my brushes, and then danced away to dress. From the screen she regaled me with bits of advice concerning whole or partial loss of temper, until, thinking perhaps I had been tormented sufficiently, she came out to implore me to button her waist where she could not reach it on the shoulder. 
Everything went wrong from the time you came back from the window and talked about that horrid-looking man you saw in the churchyard, she announced. Yes, he probably bewitched the picture, I said, yawning. I looked at my watch. It's after six, I know, said Tessie, adjusting her hat before the mirror. Yes, I replied. I didn't mean to keep you so long. I leaned out of the window but recoiled with disgust, for the young man with the pasty face stood below in the churchyard. Tessie saw my gesture of disapproval and leaned from the window. Is that the man you don't like? she whispered. I nodded. I can't see his face, but he does look fat and soft some way or other, she continued, turning to look at me. He reminds me of a dream, an awful dream I once had, or... She mused, looking down at her shapely shoes. Was it a dream after all? How should I know? I smiled. Tessie smiled in reply. You were in it, she said. So perhaps you might know something about it. Tessie, Tessie, I protested. Don't you dare flatter by saying that you dream about me. But I did, she insisted. Shall I tell you about it? Go ahead, I replied, lighting a cigarette. Tessie leaned back on the open window sill and began very seriously. One night last winter, I was lying in bed thinking about nothing at all in particular. I had been posing for you and I was tired out, yet it seemed impossible for me to sleep. I heard the bells in the city ring ten, eleven, and midnight. I must have fallen asleep about midnight, because I don't remember hearing the bells after that. It seemed to me that I had scarcely closed my eyes when I dreamed that something impelled me to go to the window. I rose, and raising the sash, leaned out. Twenty-fifth Street was deserted as far as I could see. I began to be afraid. Everything outside seemed so... so black and uncomfortable. Then the sound of wheels in the distance came to my ears, and it seemed to me as though that was what I must wait for. Very slowly the wheels approached, and finally I could make out a vehicle moving along the street. It came nearer and nearer, and when it passed beneath my window I saw it was a hearse. Then, as I trembled with fear, the driver turned and looked straight at me. When I awoke, I was standing by the open window, shivering with cold, but the black plumed hearse and driver were gone. I dreamed this again in March last, and again awoke beside the open window. Last night the dream came again. You remember how it was raining? When I awoke, standing at the open window, my nightdress was soaked. But where did I come into the dream? I asked. You... You were in the coffin, but you were not dead. In the coffin? Yes. How did you know? Could you see me? No, 
I only knew you were there. Had you been eating Welsh rabbits or lobster salad? I began laughing, but the girl interrupted me with a frightened cry. Hello, what's up? I said, as she shrank into the embrasure by the window. The man, the man below in the churchyard, he drove the hearse. Nonsense, I said, but Tessie's eyes were wide with terror. I went to the window and looked out. The man was gone. Come, Tessie, I urged. Don't be foolish. You have posed too long. You are nervous. Do you think I could forget that face? She murmured. Three times I saw the hearse pass below my window, and every time the driver turned and looked up at me. Oh, his face was so white and, and soft. It looked dead. It looked as if it had been dead a long time. I induced the girl to sit down and swallow a glass of Marsala. Then I sat down beside her and tried to give her some advice. Look here, Tessie, I said. You go to the country for a week or two and you'll have no more dreams about hearses. You pose all day and when night comes, your nerves are upset. You can't keep this up. Then again, instead of going to bed when your day's work is done, you run off to picnics at Sussler's Park, or go to the El Dorado or Coney Island. And when you come down here next morning, you are fagged out. There was no real hearse. There was a soft-shelled crab dream. She smiled faintly. What about the man in the churchyard? Oh, he's only an ordinary, unhealthy, everyday creature. As true as my name is Tessie Reardon, I swear to you, Mr. Scott, that the face of the man below in the churchyard is the face of the man who drove the hearse. What of it? I said. It's an honest trade. Then you think I did see the hearse? Oh, I said diplomatically, if you really did, it might not be unlikely that the man below drove it. There is, there's nothing in that. Tessie rose, unrolled her scented handkerchief, and taking a bit of gum from a knot in the hem, placed it in her mouth. Then, drawing on her gloves, she offered me her hand with a frank, good night, Mr. Scott, and walked out. Two. The next morning, Thomas, the bellboy, brought me the herald and a bit of news. The church next door had been sold. I thanked heaven for it. Not that being a Catholic I had any repugnance for the congregation next door, but because my nerves were shattered by a blatant exhorter whose every word echoed through the aisle of the church as if it had been my own rooms, and who insisted on his R's with a nasal persistence which revolted my every instinct. Then, too, there was a fiend in human shape, an organist who reeled off some of the grand old hymns with an interpretation of his own, and I longed for the blood of a creature who could play the doxology with an amendment of minor chords which 
one hears only in a quartet of very young undergraduates. I believe the minister was a good man, but when he bellowed, And the Lord said unto Moses, The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. My wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword. I wondered how many centuries of purgatory it would take to atone for such a sin. Who bought the property? I asked Thomas. Nobody that I know, sir. They do say the jet what owns this here Hamilton Flats was looking at it. It might be a building more studios. I walked to the window. The young man with the unhealthy face stood by the churchyard gates and at the mere sight of him the same overwhelming repugnance took possession of me. By the way, Thomas, I said, who is that fellow down there? Thomas sniffed. That there worm, sir. He's night watchman of the church, sir. It makes me tired of sitting out all night on them steps and looking at you insulting-like. I'd have punched his head, sir, begging your pardon. Go on, Thomas. One night, a-coming home with Harry, the other English boy. I sees him a-sitting there on them steps. We had Molly and Jen with us, sir. The two girls on the tray service. And he looks so insulting at us that I up and says, What's you looking at, you fat slug? Beg your pardon, sir, but that's how I says it. And he don't say nothing. And I says, Come out and I'll punch that pudding head. Then I opens the gate and goes in. But he don't say nothing, only looks insulting like. And I hits him one, but oh, his head was that cold and mushy, it'd sicken you to touch him. What did he do then? I asked curiously. Him? Nothing. And you, Thomas? The young fellow flushed with embarrassment and smiled uneasily. Mr. Scott, sir, I ain't no coward. And I can't make it out at all why I run. I was in the 5th Lancers, sir, bugler at Tel El Kabir, and was shot by the whales. You don't mean to say you ran away. Yes, sir. I run. Why? That's just what I want to know, sir. I grabbed Molly and run, and the rest was as frightened as I. But what were they frightened at? Thomas refused to answer for a while. But now my curiosity was aroused about the repulsive young man below, and I pressed him. Three years' sojourn in America had not only modified Thomas's Cockney dialect, but had given him the American's fear of ridicule. You won't believe me, Mr. Scott, sir. Yes, I will. You will laugh at me, sir. Nonsense. He hesitated. Well, sir... It's God's truth that when I hit him, he grabbed me wrist, sir. And when I twisted his soft, mushy fists, one of his fingers came off in my hand. The utter loathing and horror of Thomas's face must have been reflected in my own, for he added, It's awful. Now when I seize him, I just go away. It makes me hell. When Thomas had gone, I went to the window. The man stood beside the church railing with both hands on the gate. 
but I hastily retreated to my easel again, sickened and horrified, for I saw that the middle finger of his right hand was missing. At nine o'clock, Tessie appeared and vanished behind the screen with a merry, Good morning, Mr. Scott. When she had reappeared and taken her pose upon the model stand, I started a new canvas, much to her delight. She remained silent as long as I was on the drawing, but as soon as the scrape of the charcoal ceased and I took up my fixative, she began to chatter. Oh, I had such a lovely time last night. We went to Tony Pastor's. Who are we? I demanded. Oh, Maggie, you know, Mr. White's model, and Pinky McCormick. We call her Pinky because she's got that beautiful red hair you artists like so much. And Lizzie Burke. I sent a shower of spray from the fixative over the canvas, and I said, Well, go on. We saw Kelly and Baby Barnes, the skirt dancer, and all the rest. I made a mash. Then you have gone back on me, Tessie? She laughed and shook her head. He's Lizzie Burke's brother, Ed. He's a perfect gentleman. I felt constrained to give her some parental advice concerning mashing, which she took with a bright smile. Oh... I can take care of a strange mash, she said, examining her chewing gum. But Ed is different. Lizzie is my best friend. Then she related how Ed had come back from the stocking mill in Lowell, Massachusetts, to find her and Lizzie grown up, and what an accomplished young man he was, and how he thought nothing of squandering half a dollar for ice cream and oysters to celebrate his entry as a clerk into the wooling department of Macy's. Before she finished, I began to paint, and she resumed the pose, smiling and chattering like a sparrow. By noon, I had the study fairly well rubbed in, and Tessie came to look at it. That's better, she said. I thought so too and ate my lunch with a satisfied feeling that all was going well. Tessie spread her lunch on a drawing table opposite me, and we drank our claret from the same bottle and lighted our cigarettes from the same match. I was very much attached to Tessie. I had watched her shoot up into a slender but exquisitely formed woman from a frail, awkward child. She had posed for me during the last three years and among all my models she was my favorite. It would have troubled me very much indeed had she become tough or fly, as the phrase goes, but I never noticed any deterioration of her manner, and felt at heart that she was all right. She and I never discussed morals at all, and I had no intention of doing so, partly because I had none myself, and partly because I knew she would do what she liked in spite of me. Still, I did hope she would steer clear of complications because I wished her well, and then also I had a selfish desire to retain the best model I had. I knew that mashing, as she termed it, had no significance with girls like Tessie, and that such things in America did not resemble in the least the same things in Paris. Yet, having lived with my eyes open, I also knew that somebody would take Tessie away some day, in one manner or another, and though I professed to myself that marriage was nonsense, 
I sincerely hoped that, in this case, there would be a priest at the end of the vista. I am a Catholic. When I listen to High Mass, when I sign myself, I feel that everything, including myself, is more cheerful. And when I confess, it does me good. A man who lives as much alone as I do must confess to somebody. Then again, Sylvia was Catholic, and it was reason enough for me. But I was speaking of Tessie, which is very different. Tessie also was Catholic and much more devout than I, so... Taking it all in all, I had little fear for my pretty model until she should fall in love. But then I knew that fate alone would decide her future for her, and I prayed inwardly that fate would keep her away from men like me, and throw her into path nothing but Ed Burks and Jimmy McCormick's. Bless her sweet face. Tessie sat blowing rings of smoke up to the ceiling and tinkling the ice in her tumbler. Do you know that I also had a dream last night? I observed. Not about that man, she laughed. Exactly. A dream similar to yours, only much worse. It was foolish and thoughtless of me to say this, but you know how little tact the average painter has. I must have fallen asleep about ten o'clock, I continued. And after a while I dreamt that I awoke. So plainly did I hear the midnight bells, the wind in the tree branches, and the whistle of steamers from the bay, that even now I can scarcely believe I was not awake. I seemed to be lying in a box which had a glass cover. Dimly I saw the street lamps as I passed, for I must tell you, Tessie, the box in which I reclined appeared to lie in a cushioned wagon which jolted me over a stony pavement. After a while I became impatient and tried to move, but the box was too narrow. My hands were crossed on my breast, so I could not raise them to help myself. I listened, and then I tried to call. My voice was gone. I could hear the trample of horses attached to the wagon, and even the breathing of the driver. Then another sound broke upon my ears like the raising of a window sash. I managed to turn my head a little and found I could look, not only through the glass cover of my box, but also through the glass panes in the sides of the covered vehicle. I saw houses, empty and silent, with neither light nor life about any of them excepting one. In that house a window was open on the first floor, and a figure all in white stood looking down into the street. It was you. Tessie had turned her face away from me and leaned on the table with her elbow. I could see your face, I resumed, and it seemed to me to be very sorrowful. Then we passed on and turned into a narrow black lane. Presently the horses stopped. I waited and waited, closing my eyes with fear and impatience, but all was silent as the grave. After what seemed to me hours, I began to feel uncomfortable. A sense that somebody was close to me made me unclose my eyes. Then I saw the white face of the hearse driver looking at me through the coffined lid. A sob from Tessie interrupted me. 
She was trembling like a leaf. I saw I had made an ass of myself and attempted to repair the damage. The proceeding has been the first in a two-part reading of The Yellow Sign by Robert W. Chambers, first published in 1895. The story as written is divided into three parts, and so it unfortunately does not lend itself to a neat division for the purposes of the podcast. The dividing line I've chosen here allows for about half of the narrative to have passed, and for some of the eeriness in the story to emerge, but I think it's worthwhile to use this intermission for adding some context to the story that would be available to a reader rather than a listener of the yellow sign. The story is set in New York City of the 1920s. It's the tale of a heartbroken painter bedeviled by the otherworldly visage of a groundskeeper in the neighboring church. His model and muse, Tessie, has been repeatedly troubled by midnight visions of this worm-like man conducting a hearse through abandoned streets. The suspense builds once our protagonist, Mr. Scott, reveals that he has had this same dream himself, albeit from the perspective of the coffin. This premise is eerie and ghostly in its way, but the context in which a reader would encounter the yellow sign foreshadows that there is something even more grandly horrific awaiting us in the second half of the story. The Yellow Sign is the fourth entry in a ten-story anthology by Chambers called The King in Yellow. The stories take place in different times and locations, and notably one of the earlier stories features a character named Jack Scott, an artist then living in Paris several years before the events of The Yellow Sign, who, it seems likely, is the same Mr. Scott of this story although here he goes uh, without a given name. The titular King in Yellow refers to an in-universe play of that name, as well as to a shrouded, spectral, and masked supernatural figure, both of which feature in and loom over the story collection. So as a reader of the Yellow Sign, one would know that Tessie and Mr. Scott are here trying to grapple with the distress of their shared nightmare, but one would also be primed to suspect that there is something much more sinister here than dreams of an unpleasant groundskeeper. Is he more than he appears? Is the groundskeeper something altogether different? One would wonder how he or our protagonists relate to the worship of the old god, Haster, in far-off Carcosa. If and when will our heroes soon fall under the dreadful sway of the King in Yellow? Or is it already too late? Interestingly, neither a reader nor a listener by this point in the story has learned anything about the yellow sign foreshadowed by the name of the story here. I look forward to more broadly examining the universe that's hinted here by Chambers, 
but that will have to wait until after this current tragedy has fully played out by the end of our next episode. Until then, I am your host, Brian K. DeVille, and I hope you have enjoyed this weird and loathsome podcast. <laughs>